And it's now my pleasure to introduce our last speaker of the afternoon, Dr. Susan Swindells from the University of Nebraska Medical Center, who's going to be talking to us about a very interesting subject of long COVID. Sue? Thank you, Jeff. And um, terrific talk, Eileen. Great setup for uh, some of the things I'm going to cover, and then we can both hopefully cover in the panel discussion. So I've been asked to talk today about long COVID or the long-term complications of COVID-19. Here are my disclosures, and uh, here are the objectives for this talk, this portion of the session today. So uh, as you all know, there's been a lot of interest in the media and the lay press about this so-called long COVID. The nomenclature, I think, is a little confusing, but we are evolving into something a bit more scientific. So you'll see it called long COVID. Patients actually quite like being called long haulers. The CDC uh, classify this as post-COVID conditions, and I'll just discuss briefly what that definition includes. And most recently, the NIH have come up with an umbrella term of post-acute sequelae of SARS-CoV-2 infection, or PASC. Although uh, my colleagues at NIH are very quick to tell us that they don't act, they're not really in the business of naming syndromes. They've just used this for their own um, internal processes of um, developing grant applications and opportunities to study it. So where are we in the state of the science for this condition? So unfortunately, at the moment, we're lacking a real case definition. You know, what does this mean? Long COVID, how do we exactly define it? And that is a problem for all of the reported studies of it in that people are then able to sort of make up their own definition, which makes it difficult to compare. And we're sometimes talking about apples and oranges. The true prevalence is not really established. And then the very many cohort studies that are out there Almost all of them lack a proper control group, which would be people that are matched by, say, age and gender, but without ongoing signs and symptoms. So they're nearly all confounded by the fact that the people that are in the study are those with the prolonged signs and symptoms. We have had reports of throughout the age spectrum and also the disease spectrum. So people with asymptomatic disease, outpatients never in the hospital, all the way through seriously ill on a ventilator in the ICU have had reports of persistent symptoms. Uh, 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 children have had um, this syndrome reported and also pregnant women. So we're working on uh, trying to identify what are the risk factors for this, some of which may play into the immunological characteristics that Dr. Scully just nicely reviewed and pathophysiology. And there are management strategies still very early in the stages of, in, of evolution and still relatively generic at this point with no specific therapies identified. So Dr. Scully showed you a slide a little bit like this. I'm showing you the same one, mostly because I think it illustrates nicely the timeline here. So as she mentioned, the, uh, the viral load, you know, peaks after a couple of weeks and then usually goes away mostly to nothing, not always quite to nothing. And after about four weeks, we get into this chronic or post-COVID realm where we may start to see these persistent symptoms or evidence of organ dysfunction. So the CDC definition, which I thought would be the most useful for 
the group here today, even though there are, I'm sure, listeners from outside the U.S. and there are other definitions that are used in Europe or by WHO. But the CDC definition is post-COVID conditions describe those that persist more than four weeks after infection. And they include a range of symptoms, which you can view on the CDC website, and also actual organ dysfunction, multi-organ effects, which include this multi-system inflammatory syndrome, which can be seen in adults or the MIS-C version, which we see in children. And there is probably some overlap with effects of COVID-19, particularly for patients that were very ill, because there's a lot in common with the post-ICU syndrome, which we're all familiar with, and and or even uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, which can be uh, experienced by patients that have been very ill for a prolonged period of time. So here is an audience response question for you to consider about what your understanding is of the number of patients infected with COVID that will develop these long-term symptoms. So your choices range from 5% to 75%, or you can just say, I don't know. And I'm afraid I don't have music for this, although Mike Sarr could maybe sing to us while we're doing it. But um, I'll just wait for Stephanie to tell me will we have an answer. Okay, so I'm honestly a little bit surprised by this. I thought most people would say they don't know. But uh, some people are apparently persuaded by some of the reports that they've read. I believe the correct answer is I don't know because we don't actually know yet um, as to what the true epidemiology is. But we're probably uh, those that selected those middle numbers are probably about in the range. So here's an example of one of the reports of post persistent symptoms. And this is in patients who are hospitalized in Italy and gives you uh, uh, a chance to look at the frequency of the symptoms and the the order in which they are the most common, with fatigue being top of the list, dyspnea, joint pain, chest pain. These are the most common symptoms that are reported, and these are are similarly in post-follow-up, post-COVID follow-up. These were also reported by the patients that participated in this one particular study. And here is on the right in the box here is uh, an idea of how many many patients had no symptoms in follow-up, which is a fairly small proportion. And then here's some that had more than three. And so, again, bear in mind, this is likely a confounded patient population because they didn't really have true controls, but gives you some idea for hospitalized patients. And here is a, a CDC study of lingering symptoms in outpatients. And this was a telephone study, therefore a bit more likely to include people who perhaps did not have persistent symptoms. And in the light blue bars were symptoms that patients reported when they were tested for SARS-CoV-2 infection. And then the dark bars are those that were unresolved by the date of the interview, which was about 14 to 21 days after actual infection. So there are several sort of patient-driven cohorts, I guess you would call them, of people that have have been uh, signing up for websites, or in this case, 
using an app into into which more than four million people in Europe and in the U.S. have entered data about their signs and symptoms, and、uh, many of them reporting persistent signs and symptoms. So this is a very large number of people, and there have been a couple of preprints that they have.、Um, So-called published or at least pre-printed their results for long COVID, showing high levels of persistent symptoms. But again, you know, hard to judge without the control. So I think, in conclusions, for the epidemiology of long COVID, we have a broad range of、uh, reported rates, depending a little on the definition and methods used and the populations included in. The study,、uh, as I mentioned, they they lack a control group, and so one should interpret with caution. But I would also add that you know even in the just the U.S., we have had reported more than 32 million people diagnosed with COVID-19. So even if it's only 10 percent, which is a relatively conservative estimate, this is millions of people that will be experiencing the so-called lingering symptoms or long COVID. So, what about the clinical manifestations? Well, they are literally from head to toe. So, on the left here, we see CT scan of a patient with a stroke attributed to long COVID, and on the right, the so-called infamous COVID toe, which is a kind of vasculitis that some people get when they get infected. So, also from the recent Nature Medicine review, I think this is a useful way to、uh, group them for us as clinicians because it. Sort of fits into what our refer referral paths might be, and so here you see that the most common buckets are pulmonary or cardiovascular complications, going down to the right, neuropsychiatric, quite a lot of primary care issues. There is、uh, renal dysfunction or, or, so, or some、uh, permanent renal damage that happens for patients, not just those with severe disease, and then. A、uh, complicated thromboembolic phenomenon in the hematology bucket. So,、uh, just to talk about a few of these in more detail, cardiac manifestations of long COVID with a lovely illustration on the right done by Carlos Del Rio's daughter because I got this slide from him. And so, these are the manifestations of long COVID on the heart, and they include myocarditis, arrhythmias, and cardiomyopathy. The pathogenesis is unclear at this point. Whether it's the virus, whether it's the inflammation, so there's some parallels here, I think, with HIV in terms of how that causes organ damage. You know, we often wonder: is it the virus? Is it the inflammation? In HIV, we also wonder: is it the drugs? Less so, of course, for COVID because we don't have very many drugs. And so, are we going to see increased numbers of people with premature heart failure as a result of long COVID infection? So this is a one of a representative study from a German cohort of patients attending a post-COVID cardiac clinic, and they found ongoing in, it, cardiac involvement in 78% of patients referred to them with ongoing inflammation in 60%, with some correlation with duration and sever severity of the uh, uh, original acute COVID. But of course, another. Non-random sample in that these were patients that were referred to a cardiac clinic and likely biased towards those with cardiac findings, but definitely real and concerning、uh, evidence of impact on cardiac function by long COVID.
Uh, this is a series of uh, autopsy cases of uh, patients with uh, viral loads of greater than a thousand copies per mil in 41%. And they found a panel of uh, pro-inflammatory genes increased in patients with SARS-CoV infection of the heart because compared to others. So maybe a clue as to some of the immune markers that may be contributing. And so uh, this is the kind of study I think we're going to need to see more of in terms of trying to unravel what is the pathogenesis of the organ dysfunction that we see in long COVID. And I mentioned this particular study in competitive athletes, some of whom were completely asymptomatic, most of whom were not in the hospital. Uh, Not because we have a lot of competitive athletes in our patient populations, most of us have probably slim to none, but I think it's compelling that of these obviously extremely healthy people, some uh, did have persistent evidence of myocarditis or injury after uh, COVID infection. So I think that my point is here, this is unlike some other sequelae of uh, infectious diseases that we see, so-called chronic Lyme disease or even chronic fatigue syndrome, you know, myalgic encephalomyelitis, in that it's not just a consolation of symptoms. There's real pathology here that you could see under the microscope and definite organ damage and not just in older people. So what about lung damage? Similar spectrum of uh, manifestations of long COVID from a chronic cough to actual fibrotic lung disease, bronchiectasis, and even vascular disease. Obviously, the thromboembolic phenomenon can play a role here as the lungs are a common site for that. And so the question of is there going to be an increase in premature COPD and or pulmonary fibrosis as a result of patients with long COVID who have pulmonary complications. And so these are the pulmonary sequelae and what you might see when you do pulmonary function testing, you know, in more than half decreased DLCO and a high proportion with radiographic evidence of interstitial thickening and fibrosis. And this is from a cohort study that was done in China. Um, So again, uh, potentially confounded, but if you combine this with the cardiovascular complications, we could have patients with uh, significant morbidity going forwards from a fairly young age. COVID and the brain has another spectrum of of complications uh, after the acute infection in the long COVID period from persistent headaches, dizziness, trouble concentrating, what people refer to as this brain fog where they just can't think straight, to frankly, frank uh, confusion, hallucinations, and in the most severe cases, uh, stroke or other embolic event. So pathogenesis, again, uh, the question is, is this because of inflammation? Is this because of direct viral invasion of the brain? There's obviously a role of hypoxemia in those with more severe COVID infection. So is this something that we're going to be dealing with in some of our infected patients going forwards? I also wanted to include briefly anosmia because I think this is one of the probably about the only really sort of pathognomonic sign that we have of COVID, this loss of smell that so many patients 
report and that it seems to be very particular for this infection as opposed to other coronavirus infections or uh, respiratory infections in general. Turns out it's actually not a neurological complication of COVID after all, because it's, uh, it's due to actual viral infection of the olfactory epithelium as opposed to the olfactory nerve. So kind of a bit of a teaser there, but not really a neurologic complication. But here are some that actually are, that appear during the acute phase and also the persistent phase, some of which were newly developed after the acute infection had resolved. And so this leads into the neuropsychiatric area or emotional health and well-being, which has been a huge problem for uh, patients with COVID that has worried a lot of us. This is a study from the UK of new diagnoses of anxiety, insomnia, dementia and mood disorders after COVID-19 with influenza in the blue lines as a comparator. So we can see there's a lot more new and persisting mood disorders, anxiety disorders, and even psychiatric illness following SARS-CoV-2 infection. I think there's obviously a role from the non-pharmacologic interventions that we've all been preaching and practicing. So physical distancing and needing to isolate oneself is not necessarily good for people with anxiety and depressive disorders, increasing their loneliness and isolation. There are issues of stigma now with COVID that can make some people just feel terrible And the um, physical debility and emotional disturbance of this chronic fatigue with malaise and exhaustion uh, takes a great toll on patients. And so they are at risk from depression, anxiety, PTSD, and also substance use disorder, including alcohol too. And I think many of us have observed this phenomenon in the patients that we take care of as a way of self-medicating. So switching gears briefly to talk about management. As I mentioned, there's no proven treatment yet for long COVID. I did a search not too long ago of clinicaltrials.gov looking for clinical trials in this area and found almost 450, which is a huge amount of, um, this isn't just reports on PubMed. This is, you know, in, in clinicaltrials.gov. So this is putative studies, although in fact, Most of them were observational and not really what I would even consider a clinical trial. But I did find 217 interventional studies, the vast majority of which were various kind of rehabilitation strategies, you know, this versus that, or looking at the impact of different kind of rehab strategies. But there were some that included interventions with potentially um, uh, pharmacologic agents that may have impact on the immune system or others, such as IL-7, there's a a clinical trial in development for that. And then a lot of other, what I consider sort of random agents like naltrexone and then hyperbaric oxygen, which to be honest, is sort of touted for very many things. It can be helpful for some things. Maybe it'll be helpful for this. We don't know. I personally anticipate many more studies to come. I was kind of surprised. I didn't see something for SSRIs or or other interventions for long COVID, but I expect there will be more. So um, uh, Dr. Skolkin mentioned 
the potential impact of vaccines. So here's my uh, second ARS question. Are the vaccines helpful in improving long COVID symptoms? And your options are yes, no, maybe so, or I don't know. I would be playing the Buffalo Springfield song for what it's worth that starts off, there's something happening here. You don't want to see it. And exactly clear. Okay. That's, that would be a good one. I should have thought of that. All right. So we kind of have a split between maybe and I don't know. So uh, uh, I'd be interested in Eileen's thoughts on this, but here's my take. So we have seen anecdotal reports in the lay press and on social media. It does have some biologic plausibility in that this actually might be helpful and we have very little data. So here is one of the few studies that I could find where they've actually looked at this. This is a smallish study, 40 odd patients in the UK of patients with uh, persistent symptoms at eight months follow up. Uh, the, the just looking at the difference between those that happened to be vaccinated and those that weren't. So it wasn't that the vaccination was a, an intervention in this study or it wasn't randomized based on that. They just looked at those who were and those who weren't. And I think you can see easily comparing the plots in the right and the left that there's really no difference. And so uh, that was their conclusion is that vaccination actually didn't make any difference to any of these symptoms in this one small cohort study. But I think we still have quite a lot to learn about this. And this is a announcement at my hospital. And I suspect many of you have seen something very similar at the places that you work or nearby tertiary care hospitals in that they're having a post-COVID clinic, which is about to open and will be a multidisciplinary clinic, which is, I think, exactly what we need. And here's an example from the one that's already running at Yale University, looking at how they approach the management of patients with long COVID and what's the referral pathway? What do they recommend for an initial assessment, subsequent care, and then patient disposition? And so I think uh, many of these clinics will follow a similar pathway and will be very helpful uh, for uh, patients that are impacted by this. The other thing I was also very pleased to see was an announcement recently from Dr. Francis Collins, director of the NIH, about a huge investment that the NIH is making into so-called long COVID. And this will include uh, both a specimen bank and then also the sort of cohort studies that we actually need to be able to have a more rigorous assessment of the epidemiology and the risk factors and pathogenesis of what is long COVID. And then we can start working on some uh, interventional studies to try to prevent it going forwards. So in conclusion, I think we are going to see very large numbers of people with long-term sequelae of COVID-19 and that this multidisciplinary approach will be the most useful way of, uh, of dealing with it. I am a little worried about access for underserved populations and this is sort of in general, but in particular because as you all know, they've been overrepresented in both COVID, uh, SARS-CoV-2 infections and in worse outcomes following infection. And uh, I didn't go into this in too much detail, but looking at some of the 
reports, particularly the consumer reports of long COVID, the demographics of people reporting their symptoms, you know, for example, in an app, do not reflect the demographics of uh, the, the the epidemic in the U.S. And of course, that's difficult. You know, the the app includes patients in Europe who have different demographics, and it's hard to say for sure. But I think it's very important that um, there 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 is access to these multidisciplinary clinics and necessary case management, support, housing, transportation, food, all of the other things that patients are going to need. And I think this is getting better now, but initially in, impacted patients were very frustrated by their providers not really believing them or not listening to them when they said, you know, I still feel terrible, I still can't breathe, I have chest pain, everything hurts, I can't think straight. And so um, I think we all have to be uh, more sensitive to listening about that and making referrals for counselling and peer support when appropriate. And, of course, we do need these observational interventional trials, which I'm hoping will start developing very soon and also just added this additional public health message we might be able to include for our um, uh, patients that are hesitant about getting a vaccine. It's not just about getting infected and dying, you know, that you might end up in this long COVID bucket and just have a miserable time of it. So I believe that is my last slide and then we can move over to our panel. So over to you, Mike. 